Hello and welcome to I Think You're Interesting. I'm Todd Vanderwerf, the I in I Think You're Interesting. This week we're continuing our conversations with some of the people behind my favorite summer movies. We're going to start with a movie I can't seem to shake, a movie I can't get out of my head. It's Black Klansman, Spike Lee's new wonderful movie about a 1970s cop in Colorado Springs, a black man who goes undercover to infiltrate the Ku Klux Klan by basically cold calling them. It's wild and funny and exciting. And then it also has a really powerful message about the ways that we pretend we escape American racism and yet never can. I love Spike Lee's movies. And let me tell you, this is probably one of my absolute favorites by him. And here's the thing about it that surprised me when I first heard about it. It's based on a true story. Not everything in the movie happened exactly as it's depicted, as always happens with movies, but this story of a black cop who started talking on the phone with members of the Klan pretending to be a white supremacist really happened in Colorado Springs in the 70s. And we've got the real guy that that happened to. His name is Ron Stallworth. He wrote a book about his experience, also called Black Klansman. The book's great. The movie's great. And I I had a wonderful time talking to him about the real life story that inspired the movie, but also navigating the realities of being both a black man and a cop. It was a really interesting conversation. It was a really moving conversation. I hope you stick around for it. And after that, we'll have a chat with writer-director Desiree Akavan of the movie, The Miseducation of Cameron Post. Ron, thank you for joining us. My pleasure. Why don't you maybe just uh, tell our listeners, you know, kind of the story of what happened to you and that has become the movie. The story very simply is uh, I was a uh, detective in the intelligence division of the Colorado Springs Police Department in uh, October of 1978, and I saw one ad in the uh, classifieds. It said, Ku Klux Klan for information, and there was a P.O. box. Mm. So I wrote a note to the P.O. box pretending to be a white supremacist, uh, used the language of hate that they use, uh, referred to minorities by all the despicable uh, derogatory names. One of the things I did, let me back up, is I signed my real name to it. Yeah. Mailed it off, forgot about it. About a week or two later, I get a phone call in my office. The uh, caller identifies himself as Ken, the local organizer of the chapter. Mm-hmm. And Ken uh, said he got my note. I had some good ideas, and he wanted to talk to me further, and he asked me, why do you want to join the Klan? Or they didn't call it Klan, they called it the organization. Mm-hmm. I told him the same thing that I had said in the note, except I spiced it up by telling him that my sister is married to an inward person, and every time he puts his filthy black hands on her pure white body, it makes me cringe. Mm. I want to join so I can stop the abuse of uh, the white race. He said, you're just the kind of guy we, we're looking for. When can we meet? And that's when I said, oh, boy, what do I do now? <laughs> My investigation officially was underway at that point. I had a, I stalled him for a week. That allowed me time to formulate a plan, and my plan was quite simply to get a white officer to pose as me for a face-to-face meeting with Ken for this initial meeting and go from there. Yeah. And ultimately, we did that for seven and a half months. Wow, wow. One thing that I, I am really wondering about since now your life has become a movie. Do you remember the first time you saw John David Washington, who's the actor who plays you, uh, stepping in for you in the movie? Spike pointed out one thing. He invited me and my wife to uh, 
his uh, 40 Acres and a Mule studio back in uh, uh, October of last year mm-hmm. for the cast read-through. And uh, that was my first time meeting Spike Lee, and it was the first time I was going to encounter any of the cast members. And uh, Spike asked me to address all of them, uh, basically to tell them the story. They had a lot of questions afterward, and then I hung around to uh, talk to them about anything they wanted to talk about. And that's when I first met John David Washington. Now, I'll tell your listeners an interesting uh, backstory to this is when I was first approached about turning this into a movie, they asked me, who do you want to play you? I said, Denzel Washington. Yeah. Hmm. I'm a fan of his dad's, and I like, I've like i always liked Denzel. But Denzel is 61. I'm, I'm 65. And this, I was 25 when the events of the story occurred. As good of an actor as Denzel is, he can't become <laughs> 25. So it's ironic that it went full circle and landed on his uh, in his son's lap. And I couldn't be prouder of John David in terms of uh, how he is portraying me. He didn't try to imitate me in any way. He told me he wasn't going to. He said, I can't do that. Mm-hmm. I can't be you. He said, I'm going to try to channel you to uh, capture your essence. He captures my uh, 25-year-old essence very well. Yeah, yeah. Very well. One of the things that they, they changed from the book for the movie is you, you mentioned, you know, you first sent a letter and in the movie it's immediately a phone call, I think, because that's easier to dramatize. But what are, like, what are some other things that um, – you know, they kind of had to change from the real story because movies are so different from reality. First thing they changed is uh, I was 19 when I joined the police department as a cadet. Mm-hmm. In the movie, they have John David right at 25 years of age, essentially. Right. That's one thing. Patrice is another. There was no Patrice. And Patrice is your love interest in the film. The bombing never occurred. They talked about bombing to me on the phone. They had a couple of the Klansmen uh, I verified had uh, military training in ordnance or explosives. So they were fully capable of carrying out an act like that. They talked about it. They didn't do it. So Spike basically has them doing it in the, in the movie to the degree, degree that they tried. My afro was about an inch Half inch, inch uh, shorter, by the way. <laughs> That's great. One of the things that I, I love about the way the film depicts the the double consciousness, if you will, of of sitting there and pretending to be a white supremacist as a black man on the phone. And like, I like that the movie doesn't have like a big monologue where he explains how he feels about it. But can you take us kind of into the psychology of like having to ape those horrible opinions to be able to do your job. You got to remember, undercover work is nothing more than acting of its own. The only difference, and I told the cast members this, the only difference between what I did and what they do for a living is I didn't have a spike lead to yell cut and move on to the next scene. Right. And if I did something wrong or said something wrong, I might have a gun pointed at me, which occurred several times when I worked undercover. So it's a different form of acting. Uh, it's a very real form of acting in that your life is at stake or somebody's life may be at stake. Working undercover, seeing all this happen uh, on the screen, knowing that uh, I lived it and it was being portrayed in, for the most part, an accurate manner, was very surreal. Uh, very, I describe it to most people as like an out-of-body experience. Uh, it brought back memories. 
Uh, I got a kick out of seeing John's portrayal of me. The dance scene was nice. <laughs> he did ask me, uh, how were you on the dance floor? I said, I held my own. <laughs> and uh, he does a good job in that. But that's that's how it was. The the uh, the emotion is very heavy when I, whenever I see the movie. Uh, it still touches me when I hear my words, when I hear my name spoken. It touches me when I see events that I live being recreated. I wrote a book just to write a book, to, I mean, to tell the story. I didn't write it for any other purpose. Uh, the fact that it has garnered this much attention uh, is almost uh, overwhelming and mind-boggling. When you see the uh, the portrayal of your life from that time, obviously they've changed small things, but it is you say it's pretty accurate. Like, what are your thoughts looking back on it now and seeing it as a movie now that you're older? Now it's 40 years later. Like, how, how do you feel about that young kid doing all that stuff? I think to myself, that was one crazy son of a bitch. <laughs> <laughs> because who would have ever believed that a black man would infiltrate the Ku Klux Klan like that? Mm. And I look back and wonder at the fact that I came up with such a plan. Nobody thought it was going to work. Um, they said, you can't be done. You sound like a black man. I said, what's a black man sound like? No one could answer that. And when they couldn't answer it, we were able to move forward and put everything in motion. But that was an obstacle I had to overcome because they had the uh, basic stereotype of black people in a certain way, as they put it, shucking and jiving. Mm-hmm. And as I put it to them, I can shuck and jive when I have to. But I can also speak uh, the king's English, mm-hmm. and um, I defy you to hear me on a vo- on 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 the phone, and just by my voice alone say, "Oh, he's black." Mm-hmm. I defy anyone to make that uh, assumption, and every time I have uh, put that to uh, an audience of any kind, be it one reporter or, or a room full of people, nobody ever steps forward and takes that challenge. Yeah, because yeah. I know they can't do it. Mm-hmm. So, it it it's wonder. It's a wonder to look back and see uh, what I did back then, and it's hard to believe that it's come to this right now. So, when any time two actors play the same role, they have to kind of talk about how they're going to create this character together. So, when you and your coworker in the movie, his name is Flip. He's played by um, Adam Driver, and in the book, I believe his name is Chuck. Um, when you and your coworker were were creating this character? Like, what were those conversations like, especially very early on? There were none. Yeah? There were none. Mm-hmm. I spoke to them as exactly as I'm speaking to you. Chuck went into the uh, face-to-face meetings when I arranged them, mm. speaking as himself. Uh, there was no attempt to disguise a voice or to create a persona. Mm-hmm. Uh, they knew Ron Stallworth to be a fellow white supremacist, uh, like-minded thinking individual like them, uh, based on the conversations that I had initially where I established myself as being one of them. And when you're undercover, if you can hook your target into believing who you are within that first initial contact, once they are convinced that's who you are, it's very hard for them to come to an understanding later on that he really isn't. Right. Mm-hmm. And I had them hooked from the very beginning, and all Chuck had to do was reinforced it in face-to-face meetings, and then I had to reinforce anything that Chuck laid down when I got back on the phone with him. Mm-hmm. We had to constantly be in sync with one another in terms of, uh, if you say this in person, I've got to know it so I can pick up the conversation on the phone and vice versa. Mm-hmm. Uh, our flow, our conversational flow, had to be perfect 
so that there were no slip-ups. Yeah, yeah. The only time I was challenged was uh, Chuck went to a meeting that I had, had, had arranged. I describe it in the book. He went to Ken O'Dell, the local organizer's house, for a meeting with all the Klansmen present. It's more or less depicted in the movie uh, to, a, to a certain extent. In real life, Ken showed Chuck his collection of 13 guns and told Chuck that, uh, showed Chuck the gun that he carried. I believe it was a 45 or 9 millimeter. But he said he's always armed. And Ken was a soldier, like most of these guys. And uh, he showed Chuck the gun. He said he's always armed, which was very, very valuable information because if we ever had occasion to stop the car or truck he was driving, we knew we had potentially an armed uh, person in that car and would approach it accordingly. So we got that out of him. But something else was said. Chuck left the meeting, and something was said that I wanted to follow up on. About an hour later, I called back to the house and spoke to Ken as if I had been there. Mm -hmm. Ken picked the phone up, and the minute I opened my mouth, he said, what's wrong with you? What's wrong with your voice? And I said, what what do you mean? He said, you sound different. So I said, (coughs) I have a sinus uh, infection. (laughs) He said, oh, I get those all the time. Here's what you need to do to fix it. Then he prescribed a remedy. That was the only time they ever questioned the fact that my voice was different than Chuck's. That's amazing. They were hooked in, and he wouldn't let his own ears tell him the truth of what he was hearing. Yeah. That Mm. I was not Chuck. Mm. I have so many questions about undercover police work. (laughs) What's the the secret to hooking somebody in that way? You have to be able to uh, speak the language that they're speaking in in the manner that they speak it. If you have a certain persona that you're projecting, you have to be perfect in that persona. That's why I'm often asked, did I talk to them uh, like a white man? Well, what's a white man talk like? But uh, I made no attempt to disguise my voice. I talk to them exactly as I'm talking to you. Mm-hmm. When you're undercover, you should be who you are as close to you as to who you are as you possibly can. Because I know who and what Ron Stallworth is. Right. So I can respond to anything that's thrown at me if you're a criminal suspect sitting across from the table from me. I can respond to anything you throw at me because I know who I am, and I'll respond as Ron Stallworth, but I'm in an undercover role. But if I try to put on a a project, a a persona, a false persona, such as uh, uh, disguising my voice or speaking with an accent or something like that, it's got to be spot on perfect. Mm -hmm. Because if at any time it breaks down, then... You've got to answer for it, and that could cost you your life. Yeah. So you try, you stay as true to you, who you are and your your natural character and persona as as you possibly can. That really is one of the, one of the uh, simple secrets of undercover work. One of the things the the film depicts really well, I think, is sort of the inherent conflict in being a black man in a police department. And in fact, like the first 20, 25 minutes of the movie are just sort of about that before you get into the, the meat of the plot. And I'm wondering like what your thoughts were when you were in that position as a, as a young officer. We as black cops live in a, uh, a void uh, in that we're too black for the white community and we're too blue as in the uniform badge and gun that we wear for the black community. Right. Neither one likes us don't want to accept us. And yet we are in that profession for a noble, honorable purpose. Most of us get in there for that reason. And we're trying to do good for the public uh, uh, safety. Mm-hmm. 
but you're not accepted by either group. And in terms of uh, the white side, they look upon you as an N-word, resent the fact that you have the authority that you have over them and put it to effect from time to time. I'll give you an example. I investigated a a case where a woman, uh, a white woman, was raped. I'm the responding officer. One of the things we have to do in, in a case like that is we have to take any article of clothing they may have on because it's evidence. And uh, I asked for everything. About a day or so later, I get uh, called up to the Internal Affairs Office. The only time in my 32-year career I ever had to undergo an internal affairs uh, inquiry. And what it was, her son-in-law was offended by the fact that I, a black man, had done this to his mother-in-law doing my job. Yeah. The reason why he did that, why he filed that complaint was, her rapist was a black man. Hmm. So he felt like uh, she was being taken advantage of by me. Mm-hmm. And uh, we quickly dispelled that and the thing blew away. But the issue of my race came in for doing my job to the best of my ability in a proper procedural manner. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's just one example. To the black community, they don't want to accept you because they view you as a traitor. You, you've you've to- chosen to join the system to work against a system that they feel oppresses them. They forget that you are, in fact, one of them. Because at the end of the day, at the end of my career, when the badge and the gun come off, I was and still am just a black man in America. Mm-hmm. Okay? They, they tended to forget all that. I don't know how many times I got called pig, and yet we can't respond to it. We have to more or less grin and bear it and do our jobs when, in fact, we want to respond accordingly. You can't do it. So that, that no man's land that we live in is a, is a, it's a lonely existence, but it's one that we've chosen. And uh, if you can't handle the pressures of that as a black man, you should not become a police officer. One of the things that uh, I sort of am like, I'm wondering, like, obviously we're not going to solve this problem in this podcast conversation, but the like, the often complete lack of the lack of ability for either side in this conversation about police brutality, like especially on the part of the police to like think about over-policing and police brutality and things like that. I'm wondering like if you have thoughts on if there's a way to find a reprochment, a, a peace in that, in that regard. Like what, like what, when you were in the police department, like what sort of did you see as things that police departments can do to sort of ease those tensions? The police department can ease a lot of tensions by being more thorough in vetting who they allow into their ranks. You, you get good people in there, the good the good will pay off in the end. Right. You bring somebody who has a, a bad in them, mm-hmm. that's going to come to the forefront in time. Mm-hmm. So, and in some cases, you know, going into an interview, this guy's not the right fit. Mm-hmm. But you put him on anyway. You take a chance with him when you shouldn't. The interview process you see... John David, as me, going through to join the police department, that was a very true depiction of what actually happened to me. The only difference was I was 19, and in the movie, he's around 25. Right. Those questions that they asked him were actually asked of me. I go in in the book, I explain a lot of the questions. Those were, that was an accurate portrayal. But I was 19 years old. I was still a kid. And I'm asked about womanizing and uh, do you drink, uh, you know, uh, can you handle being called the N-word? 
with uh, be the Jackie Robinson uh, without uh, accept it with uh, with grace and dignity without fighting back, even though you want to, you know. Um, that was a very true depiction of what I went through at the age of 19. So police departments can be more thorough in their vetting process. They can also uh, need to be more aggressive when they uncover a bad apple, be more aggressive in taking the necessary steps to get rid of him and stop erecting uh, the, the blue wall of silence, which is real. Mm-hmm. It's not a myth. There is a blue wall of silence that occurs and law enforcement needs to recognize that uh, when you catch somebody that's bad in the department, go after them aggressively, give them the boot, prosecute them if necessary, and stop thinking upon that person who has de- basically degraded you and the entire profession by their illegal actions. Stop looking upon that profess- that person as a brother officer. Yeah, He or she is not. They're, they're just dirty, bad, corrupt cops that need to be uh, booted out of the profession to clean it up uh, all the way around. There's a there's a racist cop character in the movie. Was was that based on a real person or was it sort of a composite of other people you had met? Uh, it was a composite, but there was nobody like him. And, and the, the racism I experienced was subtle. Mm-hmm. Um, I would hear a Polish joke one day. The next day, it was an N-word joke, mm-hmm. you know. Initially, they said the N-word just flew, flew off their lips without any uh, thought that it was wrong. That changed uh, quickly, but that was one of the things that I went through that wasn't depicted in the movie. But there was nobody quite like him, no. Right, right. So this book is published in 2014, which is when the Black Lives Matter movement begins, and it's become a movie through this whole process of the reemergence of white nationalism, the alt-right, things like that. What has it been like going on this journey with your book as the rest of the world, things like open racism, uh, is becoming more um, part of life, you know? been a little strange. Um, again, I, I just wrote my story. I wanted to tell my story. I didn't uh, plan on anything going beyond that. The very fact that this story, uh, the events I went through, have now become a part of the national conversation and probably will become an even greater part as uh, time goes by, mm-hmm. um, it's mind-boggling. Mm-hmm. It really is. I was just a cop. Like I said, I'm a kid from El Paso, Texas, who got into the police profession, had an is- interesting career, and wrote about a small slice of that career. We made a lot of progress uh, in the 40 years, that progress has taken about two steps back since uh, Obama left the presidency mm-hmm. and that idiot took uh, took uh, the, the office of the White House. We are in bad times as a country. Uh, we don't have to be in the state that we are if we had proper moral leadership at the top. This fool, this clown, this idiot imbecile uh, that occupies the White House has done everything to divide this country and nothing to try to bring us together. When he uh, openly advocates on behalf of white supremacists and uh, people with corrupt intentions, he is taking the country down with him. He is supposed to represent all that's good in America and Americans, and in fact, he embodies the worst aspect of of, uh, Americans. Uh, it is a disgrace what 63 million people did to this country in putting that fool into office, and we as a nation should be ashamed of it. 
So when you wrote the book, it sounds like there was a lot of interest from various Hollywood studios, various agents, whoever was was calling you. Did you have any trepidation about the idea of the book becoming a movie and what made you finally sort of sign on with, with the team you did? I mean, obviously Spike Lee is one of the great filmmakers, so that made it easy, I'm sure. The only trepidation I had in this whole process was in was when they the script uh, that wrote they wrote the screenplay that was written initially that I uh, I had authority to approve or disapprove it for it to go f- uh, beyond that. I think it was about the second. Actually, it was the first. They had a love scene with uh, Patrice. The trepidation I had was as I'm reading this, I'm thinking, yes, that doesn't sound like me. That's not how I would approach a woman, you know. It, it was just weird seeing my character and uh, that was going to be on film being depicted in this circumstance. And then I said, I don't like that. Take it out and give me a dog as a companion. So the second, uh, or the the yeah, the second or third one they sent me script had it written in where I had a, 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 a half collie, half German Shepherd dog yeah. as my companion, yeah. my love interest. And uh, the funny part about that was I did, in fact, have a half-collie German Shepherd <laughs> dog uh, named King. They told me, they said, we got to have, you have to have a love interest in it. I said, give me a dog. <laughs> so they wrote the dog in. When I read the script with the dog, I said, okay, that ain't going to work. <laughs> put put the, the female back in, but tone it down a little bit. So that was the biggest trepidation I had was right. seeing uh, that uh, the, uh, that depicted and Ultimately, it didn't uh, get into the uh, anything that they filmed. Uh, there were no love scenes or anything like that. Right. When you were sitting there and watching the movie for the first time, what was the scene that you were just most moved by or most impressed by or maybe even you liked, like just liked the most that you were like, wow, I can't believe that was me? The scene with the phone conversation and especially the last scene, which was a composite, mm-hmm. The last scene with where he identifies himself to David Duke on the phone uh, never happened. Mm-hmm. Calling David Duke on the phone happened quite a bit of times uh, over the course of the seven and a half months. Uh, we had chats of various colors, but uh, I never identified myself to him. So that was a composite scene. But the aspect of that scene that was very true was when he makes fun of uh, David Dukes uh, referring to the way blacks talk as uh, you can identify them by how they uh, say the word are. Mm-hmm. Whites say are, blacks say are-a. Mm-hmm. And David uh, had told me in a phone call, whenever you're talking to somebody, because I asked him flat out on the phone, aren't you afraid of some smart alecky inward person mm-hmm. calling you up pretending to be white to learn about the Klan? He said, no, I can always tell when I'm talking to one of them. Mm. I said, how? He said, by the way they uh, pronounce the English language. I said, I don't understand. He said, take you, for example. I can tell that you're a pure Aryan white man because of the way you pronounce English. Mm. I said, I still don't understand. He said, take the word or letter R. We pronounce it, we whites pronounce it the way it was meant to be pronounced. We say R, whereas an inward person would say R-a, mm-hmm. R-a. He said, so if you're ever on the phone with somebody and you're not sure whether they're uh, uh, Aryan white like us or the N-word, get them to say that word. It's a dead giveaway as to what they are. So, Mr. Duke, I want to thank you. If you hadn't told me that, I never would have known, and I appreciate it. 
So from that time on, whenever I called him up, I would say, hey, Mr. Duke, how are uh, you doing? <laughs> hey, Mr. Duke, are uh, you coming to Colorado Springs? I would just inject that word and emphasize it. He never picked up on the fact that he was being played. Wow. And when I see that going on in that last scene, and I see everybody laughing like he did, especially his sergeant, who was a real person. Uh, he died of cancer in 1981. Sergeant Ken Trapp, good man, good cop. Sergeant Trapp used to hear my phone conversations with David Duke. We didn't have cell phones, so we didn't have speaker or anything, but he would hear what I was saying, and he would be cracking up laughing to the point of turning red in the face, losing his uh, breath, gagging, and running out of the room to uh, recompose himself. He'd walk back in the office, hear me say something else as a white supremacist, and he'd bust out laughing and run out of the room again <laughs> So because I was supposed to be by myself. We, we had a lot of conversations where the, that was the, that interplay between the two of us, him laughing at me, pretending to be a white supremacist and almost getting sick over it, me laughing at his reaction to what I was doing. Mm-hmm. It was like a Saturday Night Live skit. <laughs> uh, when, I see, when I see that scene... It uh, brings back some fond memories, um, and uh, it's quite comical. Well done. Yeah. Well, we end every episode by asking our guests some of the same questions. I'm going to ask you one of those, which is, so you wrote this book. Who's the writer that you learned the most from in writing that book? They can be alive, they can be dead, but you you just have never met them. The man I dedicated the book to, along with my wife, uh, his name is uh, Elroy, was Elroy Bode, B-O-D-E. He was my uh, sophomore, 10th grade English uh, teacher Mm. at Austin High School in 1969. He himself was an author. He penned uh, 10 books talking about the Southwest. Uh, His writing is very reminiscent of of, uh, Henry David Thoreau Mm -hmm. in terms of uh, how he looked at the world. Mr. Bodie gave us a class assignment uh, in 69. We had to write uh, a story about a two- or three-page story, I can't remember. And he said he was going to judge it and would award a prize to the winner. Mm. I don't remember what I wrote about, but I wrote my story, turned it in, and uh, on the day in question, he gave out three prizes, uh, third, second, and first. And when he announced mine, he was very complimentary. My my reward was uh, Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man. Sure. About a conflicted black man in the, in the 40s and 50s. Right. Uh, it's considered a classic. At that time, I was undergoing uh, issues in school with some of the people I was dealing with. This was in 1969. Panthers were still alive. America was uh, in the midst of the civil uh, rights movement. Uh, cities were being burned and uh, looted, uh, riots and everything. And uh, I was in a uh, conflicted uh, space at that time in my life. And I remember uh, Mr. Bodie asked me one time uh, if anything was going on in my life uh, in a bad way. And I told him uh, exactly what I was thinking, and he counseled me. Uh, He was very good at that. And then this writing assignment came. Hmm. So he gave me Invisible Man for a purpose to uh, understand the story that Ralph Ellison was portraying about how you deal with— conflict uh, as a black man, the racism and so forth, and how you can overcome it. And uh, he told me then that uh, I had a talent for uh, putting pen to paper and encouraged me to pursue it. I didn't 
give it much thought. But when I decided to write this book and I told Mr. Bodie I, I was, I asked him if he would honor me by uh, by editing it, being my first editor, read through it. And I said, I want you to take your red pen and do like you did in class. And boy, did he tear it up. <laughs> but from tearing it up, I was able to put together the first book, which he approved, read, mm-hmm. and... Uh, ultimately got a contract uh, with Flatiron Books uh, for the revised, uh, re-edited edition. Mr. Bodie passed away September of uh, last year, and uh, it's been a little empty. He knew everything that was going on in the creation of the movie. He would always ask me when I would call up, so tell me what's happening, what's Spike doing now, he loved Spike Lee. He liked Spike Lee as an artist, uh, talked about it all the time. He thought Malcolm X was a classic. And uh, he asked me to keep him appraised of every step of the development of this movie. He died on a Sunday at the age of 80, uh, 85. I spoke to him the Friday before he died, and his wife told me this later. She said, after I hung up, he said, you know, I'm going to go back and reread Ronnie's book. And then I'm going to contact some people that I know and tell them about it. And she said he went up to his uh, private uh, office where he worked, and he had an old manual typewriter that he one-fingered typing on. And she said he put a legal piece of yellow paper in in the typewriter, and he started typing. After he died, she gave me that paper, and it basically said, Ronnie Stallworth is a student of mine, was a student of mine. Ronnie is now an author. He has written a book called Black Klansman. And that's where it ended. It was still in his typewriter when he died. So my influence is Elroy Bodie. God rest his soul. The book is Black Klansman. The movie is also called Black Klansman. You should read the book, see the movie. Ron Stallworth, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you. Have you seen Vox's show on Netflix? It's called Explained, and every episode is a 15-minute deep dive into one important topic. And this week, it's something very dear to my heart. Can we live forever? I got an early preview. I'm excited to announce I will be living forever, but I do think you'll love the episode. It explores questions like, what is it about old age that kills us and is it treatable? It shows how long humans have lived throughout history and how we've brought that number up to where it is now. The human lifespan, as far as we know, 120 years, but most of us only make it two-thirds of the way there. And this episode will tell you why. And uh, maybe, you know, you'll figure out how to live forever from watching it. I sure did. So go check it out on Netflix. Search for Explained or for Vox or go to netflix.com slash explained. There aren't a lot of movies I've seen where I feel like, hey, they put my childhood up on screen because I grew up in the middle of nowhere among Christian fundamentalists. And that just is not an experience that gets depicted a lot. But I did feel that way watching The Miseducation of Cameron Post, a new movie. It won the U.S. Drama Prize at the Sundance Film Festival this year. Director Desiree Akavan has had a really interesting career. She did this, and she also starred in and wrote and directed the 2014 film Appropriate Behavior, which was another really great little movie. 
The Miseducation of Cameron Post, though, is about this thing that is right now weirdly timely in a way that I don't know that it would be, especially since the movie's set in the early 90s. It's about a girl who is caught sleeping with another girl and is sent to a gay conversion therapy retreat that is run by fundamentalist Christians. It is a really beautiful portrait of what it means to like discover yourself even in opposition against the rest of the world. Uh, I, I really like this movie. I think you will too. And Desiree and I had a great chat about it. My guest is Desiree Akavan. She's the co-writer and director of The Miseducation of Cameron Post. Desiree, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. So The Miseducation of Cameron Post, just just for our listeners who um, haven't heard of it or haven't seen it, just kind of give me the, the sort of the 30-second summary of what it's all about. So the film takes place in 1993. Mm. It's about a teenage girl who gets caught in the backseat of a car with the homecoming queen and uh, is sent to a gay conversion therapy center by her born-again evangelical aunt, who is her primary caregiver. Uh, I really like the film. Thank uh, you. I think it's a, a beautifully made, very thoughtful movie about um, – I'm from rural South Dakota and grew oh. up in a fundamentalist Christian household. So like I thought you captured that really well. And you're from New York, yeah, which I'm is not, from not it at that. All, yeah. Tell me about like the research process of, of, of figuring out what this film was going to look like. Well, you know, I just realized as I pitched that I was like, that's not, that's a pitch of the first five minutes of the film. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but basically it's like she goes to the center and she makes friends and, and like meets other like-minded people for the first time in her life and, mm. and um, realizes that the adults in her life don't know what the am I allowed to curse? Yeah, you can curse all you want. Don't know what the fuck they're doing. <laughs> yeah. They're fuck they're fucking doing. Mm-hmm. Um my in was the teen aspect of it. To me it was like a John Hughes film. When mm-hmm. I read the book, I loved it. It's based on a book and yeah. I loved the book and it felt like the most honest depiction of teenage life and sexual coming of age that I had ever read and I felt like I really craved that on screen. And I love teen films. The Breakfast Club is one of my favorites and so that was my personal endpoint. Mm-hmm. I grew up uh, the child of Iranian immigrants in the New York area and I never wanted to make fun of Christianity. Mm-hmm. So I mean, first and foremost, we wanted to create fully dimensional characters who everyone thought they were doing the best that they could do for these kids. And my endpoint, my co-writer, who's also my producer, uh, was, you know, in Catholic schools growing up in Italy. So she had grown up with religion in her life. I had not. Um, But what we basically did was we started with the source material and Emily Danforth, the writer of the book, shared with us the books and the research she had done Mm -hmm. on gay conversion therapy, which was a really good in into the evangelical Christian world. And then from then it was a real jumping off point. I watched a lot of sermons. We read a lot about the ex-gay movement. I'm using air quotes when I say ex-gay. And the leaders of an organization called Exodus International, Mm -hmm. which used to be the umbrella organization advocating for gay conversion therapy. And they are now defunct. They shut down a few years ago because the founders fell in love with each other and everyone was a raving homosexual. But I think it started off the research very general and Mm -hmm. then it became very specific. And we based characters off of people that we fell in love with and who were clearly struggling and had made the, it was too late they had made themselves the faces of this movement right but it was more focused on ex-gay than christian in general and then but the the movie does touch on general 
Christian 90s life. Like there's a, a rock concert, a Christian rock concert. And we wanted to make that cool. Yeah. We wanted them to sound like the cranberries. We never wanted to take the piss out of people who 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 look at the Bible as a a touchstone for their life. I always saw this as people misinterpreting the Bible. Right, right. Yeah. I think that's really interesting because uh, I, I kind of grew up in the heart of this era and was reading about uh, conversion therapy. And when you just read about it, like, especially in Christian press that's sort of predisposed to present mm-hmm. it in a good light, it's just like, well, they're just helping people overcome their psychological hurdles. Like, it sounds like intense therapy, basically. Yeah, it's like rehab. It breaks down to the same techniques you use yeah. in rehab, but like incredibly simplistic, which is just like, well, if you're a gay man, you haven't bonded enough with other men, then yeah. you need to work on your masculinity. And I think something the film captures is both how these people think they're doing a good thing and how some of the characters who are in positions of power have convinced themselves it's a good thing, but also how damaging it is to just hear who you are is abhorrent, aberrant, I should say, is wrong, is somehow dividing from what, uh, you know, the, the world is supposed to be. And I th- how did you sort of manage that balance, you know? Well, first off, that's what made me want to make this film. To mm-hmm. me, gay conversion therapy was a metaphor for what it and this process for what it was to be a teenager. Mm-hmm. I think no matter who you are, no matter where you come from, you hit those teen years and you're like, who I am fundamentally is wrong right. and I need to change it. It doesn't, it doesn't matter what your Achilles heel is. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have to be your sexuality. And that's why I thought it would make such a universal film. And that was my end point. Mm-hmm. What were your teenage years like? like Awful. What was- <laughs> Just the worst. I did not get laid the way Cameron does in this film. And what's funny is like this film is very sexy. It's a sexy or a sexual coming of age for this young woman. And that was important to me as a queer filmmaker. But no, nah, I didn't have any fun as a kid. Cameron had a lot better time than I did. <laughs> well, I was, did- oh, go ahead. I was, I was voted the ugliest person at my school. Oh, no. There was a contest. Mm. I was I had very few friends. I mean, I had no friends. I would eat my lunch in everyone would eat in the cafeteria and the cafeteria was divided by social groups, which is true of any school. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would eat first in middle school in the girls' locker room mm. so I could be early for gym the way <laughs> all cool kids are. Uh, cool. I wasn't athletic, by the way. <laughs> I, I did not get onto the um, basketball team. Yeah. And uh, – yeah, I just was very lonely and very dorky and I wrote plays. And so I, in high school, I would eat in the lobby of the auditorium mm-hmm. so I could be closer to the theater teachers Yeah, and be <laughs> early for my acting class. Yeah. Uh, and I was, I was really into playwriting and, and putting on shows. Do you remember a time when you sort of, because in this movie, Cameron kind of finds her people. And I'm wondering yeah, if there was sure. a time when you felt like, oh, I'm finding my people, oh, yeah. even if that was in college or something. You know? Yeah. Well, I hated college too. I had very few <laughs> friends. I spent all of college smoking weed and masturbating. It was my one hobby. I, I had very few people in college. I think by the end of high school, I'd found my voice writing plays and putting on shows with other equally dorky theater kids. And But I was always one step behind all of them. And it was funny because I was, I was always auditioning to become their friends. Mm-hmm. They were cooler than I was. And then when I got to college, it was a similar situation, but a little bit lonelier. And then I, I studied abroad in London one year. And the first day of school, I met this girl from Italy who knew everything there was to know about um, Truffaut and Visconti and was incredibly beautiful. And everybody, I mean, she just, she was introverted. She was the opposite of me, you mm-hmm. know, 
um, I'm very loud and and tall and big. And she's petite and quiet and subtle. And I talk a lot, don't know that much. She never talks. She knows everything. <laughs> and I was like, fuck that bitch. I hate her. Uh, I did not like her at all. Yeah. But the boy I had a crush on had a crush on her. So I pretended to be her friend and we would go shopping for her. I mean, it was absurdly stupid and kind of like the plot of a bad movie. Yeah. But then um, that's how I ended up hanging out with her. And I was like, oh, my God, this woman is the smartest coolest girl I've ever met. And we see the world the same way. We speak the same language. And that is Cecilia Fragiuele, who is my writing and producing partner right now. And we co-wrote this movie together Mm. and she produced it. She made it happen. Mm. She's my Mm. best friend. Having those creative relationships with a friend, with a partner, with somebody you're really close to can be trying. How do you keep, uh, how do you keep the friendship strong while also keeping the creative partnership strong? What's strange, being her friend has taught me a lot about love. Because my romantic relationships never work out. (laughs) But in a lot of serial, you know, three-year-long partnerships where I've been grappling with that question. But Mm -hmm. weirdly, intuitively, we make it work. And I think it's because I have all the ego and she has none. We actually had recently our first, like, real test Mm -hmm. of our friendship. And we co-wrote a television series in London that'll be on on Hulu. Mm in November. And two months before we went into production, while we were finishing off the scripts, she gave birth. Mm. And uh, I had not ever shot without her. And I was starring in it and being on set and having her come and go every once in a while was so painful. And I missed her so much. And I really resented her. And I think the way that you get through that, and I feel very much we're on the other side of it now that we've locked picture and we've gone through it and we've had our tears. I think the way you get through it is you have to say the uncomfortable thing that you're upset about Mm -hmm. and you have to say the unsayable. Mm. And I knew it wasn't her fault. She gave birth. I knew she was pregnant. It was a ticking time bomb. There's no possible way she could have (laughs) birthed her child and held my hand through the process of making our show. Like she had done her job. She co-wrote it. But I had to say, you know, my feelings are hurt. (laughs) You love your baby more than me. (laughs) No, I didn't say that. (laughs) But something along those lines that was equally as absurd and self-indulgent. And it just had to be said and then we had to get through it. And uh, I think that's it is saying the uncomfortable truths that you hate to say. And it's easier to say it to someone you're not sleeping with. Is it easier to have that kind of partnership when you, like you said, you're, you're loud and and you were the star of your first film yeah. and the star of this tv show like it's easier to have that relationship when there is somebody who kind of wants to be the public face if you will i think for us it works mm-hmm. we both know what she brings to the table mm-hmm. and really and know that it doesn't happen without her um but at the same time she would hate to do what I do in terms of being the face of something and selling it constantly and selling myself. You mentioned that you're the the child of Iranian immigrants. um, And that is, I think, kind of an interesting intersection to be in at this point in American history or at any point in American history, really. Like, how do you feel that that experience that being your parents' child has sort of informed your artistic work? I mean, obviously, your first film is... (laughs) Not not autobiographical, but mm-hmm. like it's you star in it. It's about that experience in some ways. So. In some ways, yeah. yeah. I mean, I was never living with someone and closeted the way like that became a dramatic device. Mm-hmm. Uh, I never was lying to them. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking right now. It's okay. <laughs> it's what we're here for. Yeah, exactly. 
anybody growing up their parent's child dictates everything they do, even sure. if they're an accountant. Right. Growing mm-hmm. up their parent's child made them an accountant. Mm-hmm. I am so deeply influenced by being the child of immigrants from Iran. Mm-hmm. It is my culture. And also, it is not at all. When your family is from another country, you're neither here nor there. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't feel American and I don't feel Iranian. When I'm around other Iranians, they're like, you don't know shit. Mm. Here's the thing. I feel nostalgic and homesick for a place that doesn't exist. Right. Because also my parents were raised in pre-revolution Iran. Mm-hmm. And that's a very different world and a very different language, very different manner than Iran today. Mm-hmm. So you're kind of from nowhere, mm. like a fictional place that just exists in your living room. Mm-hmm. And that world is one you share between like yourself and your parents and your brother and then no one else. Yeah. I don't know, but I think every person, I'm sure some people feel like they belong, but I'm like, I think every person feels kind of like, where is my place in the world? And I think the work I do is about carving out some space for myself. I think what I'm getting at is, so in the fundamentalist Christian world, Mm -hmm. there's this idea that you're in the world, but not of the world, that you are by necessity of how existence works, you have to live on this planet. But at the same time, you have to be part of some higher calling that, that puts you constantly outside of like secular society. I don't know how true that works out for anybody, but like I was sort of plagued by that growing up. And like, I'm wondering if you found uh, sort of a connection with that idea of like, yes, evangelical Christians are, have immense power in the United States, but like they sort of see themselves as outsiders. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I'm trying to get to the crux of what you just said. Is that like not part of it, meaning that they're like on a different plane because the word of God is what they're executing and no yeah, one else is. It's like you have to live in a world where, for instance, we would always complain about like you see in advertising. There's a lot of, you know, um, sexualized imagery in advertising, let's say. And um, that was always like a problem was like yeah. you had to be around all of that and you had to see that. And like, well, your moral you compass know. is just different. And I yeah. agree with that. I really relate to that mm-hmm. where I see the world from this really different perspective of someone whose parents survived war and had fought for them to be here. And in my case, it was just being so grateful to be at the table Mm -hmm. and so grateful to be listened to and allowed to exist the way, I mean, theoretically exist the way men do in this country. Mm -hmm. Um, Practically, I don't think that happens, but the hope is there, the idea is there. I guess then sort of the flip side of that is when you come into a situation where you are like you didn't grow up evangelical Christian, like what do you think you benefits in terms of the art from being an outsider, from being an observer of a culture you don't know a lot about? I don't know because actually I don't think it's great that I'm not evangelical and I made this film. Mm. Like that was one thing I had a real sensitivity around and felt guilt for and tried as much as possible to be fair and involve people who knew that world. Mm -hmm. I feel like Emily Danforth, the writer of the book, was involved and understood that world. Ashley Connor, my cinematographer, grew up very Christian and understood that world. Chloe Moretz, who stars in the film from Georgia and is Southern Baptist. Of course, it's not the same thing. Mm -hmm. Um, It's very close, though. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) So I think that I think that it's better to be from a world to make it. I don't think it's a positive mm-hmm. that I made this film and I'm not evangelical. I I, I think representation counts. Right. But at the same time, my endpoint was a little different and what attracted to me to this story was 
growing up queer and that to me was more important than the other elements. And I just felt like it was my responsibility to be fair, preserve the dignity of um, evangelical Christians and do my research. Well, it's a great thing about about making films, making television, is you can surround yourself yeah. because it's such a collaborative effort. It really it's not is. like writing a novel. Like, how did how do you when you work on something like this correct for blind spots you might have, and like hiring the right people to sort of check you where you need to be checked? That's it. You just hire the right people, mm. and you are constantly having a dialogue over authenticity and um, representation. Adam's character, uh, played by Forrest Goodluck, is um, native. Mm-hmm. I think he's Lakotan and he's Two-Spirit. I didn't know what Two-Spirit was when I read the book and it taught me that. And then I felt like, okay, if we're going to represent this thing I've never seen on screen before, I should talk to some Two-Spirit people. Just to briefly sort of define what Two-Spirit is. Two-Spirit is a third gender Mm -hmm. in the Native community and it's neither male nor female. And it literally means, winked is what they called it in Lakotan community. And it means like the man's soul is being killed by the female or the, the man male part of you is being killed by the female part of you and they're at odds with each other. And it's it's it sounds like a queer concept. It seems like neither gay nor straight. Mm-hmm. It's its own thing, mm-hmm. a third gender. Mm. And, you know, clearly I'm like, I love that I'm like, well, I educated myself by talking to two spirits and clearly like two years later, I'm like, what? <laughs> but um, at the time, Forrest and I met with uh, the two-spirit community in New York mm-hmm. and they told us how they saw it and they said it a lot more articulately, but also what life was like as someone who's two-spirit. And it's a different social standing in the Native community. So that was it. It was like I asked him to look at the script and the parts where we discussed two-spirit and he changed the dialogue accordingly. Mm. And that was great. I mm-hmm. was really glad that I got someone's point of view who knew that world. I had just read about it in books. Mm-hmm. When you read about things like like two-spirit or just think about like the fact that we're more comfortable with various queer LGBTQ identities in this period of time. But then you look back like this movie takes place like 20 years ago, 25. And it's very, it's a very different world in a lot of ways. You think about like the Lakotan culture, you look at any ancient culture, they had sort of a description of non-binary, basically not in the binary of whatever it is. So like, what has this making this movie made you understand about the impulse to go toward that binary instead of embracing the fact that it doesn't exist. I don't think this movie changed my perspective on that, Mm. to be honest. Mm -hmm. If anything, this movie's taught me about fear and the way that we fear differences, Mm. especially with children, because they're so pure. I think that the way adults vilify hormones and the teenage experience and making mistakes, quote unquote, That's what I learned when researching Mm -hmm. and watching teen-oriented sermons Mm -hmm. was the fear we instilled in them for impulses and how much shame adults carry with ourselves and that we enforce that shame onto our kids. And it's not just in the religious community. I was given a lot of shame, shame for my body, shame for my – the way I carry myself, the way I speak Mm – being a loud woman, I feel like my ambition right now, until I, God willing, have a family of my own, is to shed this shame because I don't want to pass it to someone else. Hmm. Like my mother was 19 when she got married and pregnant and was coming from Iran. Her upbringing was different. 
but yeah, making this has taught me a lot about shame and how I'd like to discard it. And I think that's what I'm trying to do with my work. Mm-hmm. You were the star of your first film, Appropriate yeah. Behavior. You're not on screen here. What do you, what sort of do you get from being, from acting in a movie you're directing? And then what made you, um, what made you gravitate towards something where you weren't going to be on screen, where there like wasn't a part for you really? I never set out to be an actor. Mm-hmm. It made sense for that story. And because I, I had made a web series beforehand and the movie was sort of this jumping off point from the series. Mm-hmm. And that's how that happened. It was just kind of this uh, snowball effect. It was easy and fast and cheap. Mm. But I always wanted to direct and write. And and this was my dream. In a lot of ways, I feel like it's my first film. Mm. I was in the driver's seat. When you're starring in something you direct, you are not in the driver's seat at all. You are just hustling to get through. You are wearing too many hats. Mm. I learned my style as a director, which is to curate a really talented group of collaborators and get out of their way mm. and and take the temperature and see when I need to step in and support and and what kind of support people need. Mm-hmm. In, in, intuiting that is is a really fun skill to develop. What did you sort of learn about directing actors from being an actor yourself at times? Oh, yeah. To get out of their way. I mean, but all, different people need different things. I mean, some actors you can tell want a lot of support. And then other actors are coming with everything in their head and it's just about making sure that it's in line with what you want. Hmm. This was Chloe's like 60th film. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, It was Sasha Lane's first time on a traditional set. Hmm. Between the two of them, they had very different needs. I feel like Chloe had needed freedom Mm -hmm. and didn't want to be backseat driven. And Sasha and I needed to learn how to communicate with each other. She's a poet of an actress. I really, really loved working with her. And she needs a very different style of communication. Mm. And I love that about my job is is seeing what each person needs and being able to empathize with where they're at and support them however they need it. I was talking with some of the people who made the HBO show The Leftovers, and they were like stunned at how popular the show was among evangelical teens. They were like, how did that happen? Yeah, how did that? Oh, and, I guess that makes sense. And like, yeah, and like, but it's a show that's riddled with doubt about like the existence of God, <laughs> yeah, the existence yeah, yeah. of anything. And like, but that's the thing is that evangelical America is really hungry for interpretations of itself, even mm-hmm. if it's like a critical yeah, interpretation. Anyone who's not, anyone who's not seeing themselves yes. on screen is hungry for it. As long as it's sincere, you yeah. know, as long as it's not making fun of them. And I'm like, so if you imagine kind of, as we head into the end of this conversation, if you imagine like some evangelical teens finding this movie, seeing this movie, what, what are you hoping that they take away from it? Even if they're like skeptical. I hope they feel less alone. 100%. Yeah. I just hope they feel less alone. Mm-hmm. That's why I make movies. So I feel less alone. That's why I, the movies I love make me feel less alone. Mm. That's it. Well, we end every episode by asking our guests some of the same questions. So I'm going to ask you a couple of those. We're going to start with, who is the filmmaker you've learned the most from, living or dead, that you've never met? Mel Brooks, maybe? Interesting. Why do you say that? I think he dances between slapstick and um, heartfelt realism. Maybe it's his partnership with Gene Wilder. Mm -hmm. But between the two of them, there's like a a heartfelt, down-to-earth realness 
hand in hand with a, a slapstick absurd hilarity that I love. Mm. And I, I'm always trying to toe that line in my own way. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what's the last like movie you saw, book you read, TV show you watched, just the last pop culture thing you did. And uh, what did you think of it? So I recently rewatched the comeback like, mm. last week just because I needed to laugh and I needed a comfort. The and, Lisa Kudrow show? Yeah. yeah. And I love it. Yeah. It just makes me happy. It was that and Bojack Horseman. I rewatched just for the pleasure of it because I, I needed some comfort. I am watching the upcoming season five of Bojack Horseman. And it is so good. Do you have an advance? Yeah. The, Fuck the you. perks of my job. Fuck you. I can't believe there's a new one. It's such a good show. And finally, uh, wait, I have a question. Is it taking more stylistic leaps? Cause I feel like last season they just went experimental. Like each season they go a little more experimental in this beautiful way that I love. Is it still going? Yes. Yeah. Not yes. linear. Without spoiling anything. Yes. Cool. They're doing some, some really great stuff. <laughs> and finally, whether it was for the company or for the food, what is your most memorable, your best meal you've ever eaten? I think what thing that really hits me, so when I was like 22, mm. I had this boyfriend who lived in Austria and I went to Austria to be to be with him for the summer and his family took us. They were in the south of Austria, so we went to Trieste, which was in Italy, northern Italy, and we had pasta mm. and it was so good. And I think it was also, I felt free and young and like the world was my oyster kind of feeling. Mm. And that meal, I, I don't know why I just always think of that meal. Like it was just some like shells, like it was yeah. a really simple pasta dish, but um, maybe it was because I was away from home and in love, but yeah. that meal was a good one. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Desiree Akhavan, the film is The Miseducation of Cameron Post. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. You have been listening to The Miseducation of Todd Vanderwerf, better known as I Think You're Interesting. And in case you hadn't guessed, I'm Todd Vanderwerf, the host and executive producer of the show. Our producer is Bridget Armstrong. The executive producer of audio at Vox Media is Nishak Kurwa. Our sound designer is Miles Yule. Our logo design is thanks to Victor Ware, Crystal Stevens, and Georgia Cowley. Our production manager is Alex Allreich. Our production coordinator is Carrie Clements. Our studio is thanks to Rebel Talk Network here in Los Angeles. This week's episode, The Chat with Ron, was recorded by Ernie Hurtado, and The Chat with Desiree was recorded by Will Broughton. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to this show on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or Spotify or, you know, wherever fine podcasts are sold. It helps us get the word out about the show, and I I do read all of those reviews. If you also have thoughts about it you don't want to share in a review, you can email me, Todd at Vox.com. You can email the show, ityi.podcast at Vox.com, and you can tweet at me, TVOTI. Tavoti. We're going to be back next week with another person that has made a movie I love this summer. Bo Burnham, the director of Eighth Grade. I think you're going to like that episode too. I think you're going to like all the episodes because I, I think they're good episodes. But until then, go see a movie. There's so many good ones out right now and there's air conditioning in the theaters and I know movie pass is dying but it's, it's hanging on. So just go see a movie.